are listening to Bringing Grace to the Nations podcast, where we talk about your theological questions. BGN podcast is produced every Saturday for your enjoyment. Get more information on our website, grace-nation.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at Grace Nation Min and on Facebook. Now, here is your host, President of Grace Nation Ministries, Victor. Hello, guys, and welcome back to the Bringing Grace to the Nations podcast. I am your host, Victor, and we are back with session two of an amazing just discussion slash uh not debate, but just just a discussion, just talking about yeah. what reform theology is. And so we have my friend Billy back here. Welcome back. Yeah, good to be back. Thank um, you. I'm just so happy that we're able to continue this discussion. So a last uh, episode or last last session that we did. This is actually part two. Yeah. Uh, of our session or of our series, and we just finished part one, and we talked about just the Reformation and Reformed theology and, yeah. and what that means and what that is and what Calvinism is. And the the things we were discussing were tulip. And we got through total depravity. And just a short summary, we are born sinners, apart from God. Yep. And then we went on to, part, to, to the U in tulip, which is just unconditional election. Yep. And I think that... I think we were able to explain it really well. Yep. And so if you guys are interested in either one of those two things, please go back and give session one a listen and then come back to this episode and go ahead and finish up you know, the series because in this episode we're going to be kind of building off of what we've already discussed yeah, with total depravity and unconditional yeah. election. And we're moving into the L of TULIP and <laughs> limited atonement. Yep. This is... A big one. This is, I don't think this is as much of a debated one. However, I think it has its points that can lead to some controversy. Absolutely. And so, again, if you guys uh, were listening to the last episode, I'm reading from a book called The Five Points of Calvinism, Defined, Defended, and Documented. Great book. The link uh, to it will be in the show notes for your guys' reference and for your guys' edification if you would like. And... This is what he, the author, says on limited atonement. Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only, but did not actually... Wait, let me restart. Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only and and actually secured salvation for them. Hmm. His death was substitutionary and was a substitutionary endurance of the penalty of sin in the place of certain specified sinners. In addition to putting away the sins of his people, Christ's redemption secured everything necessary for their salvation, Mm. including faith, which unites them to Christ. Yes. The gift of faith is infallibly applied by the Spirit to all of whom Christ died for, thereby guaranteeing their salvation. And I think there are a few parts in that that we need to discuss. And the first one, I think, is Christ dying for the elect. <laughs> yeah. And only the elect. Yeah. The first verse I think of is John 3.16. I just, I just pulled that up, yeah. Okay, so tell us, how does John 3.16 confirm <laughs> what's that being said instead of contradicts it? Yeah, I think... The most important word in that definition, the two most important words, is intent and guarantee. The intent of Christ's death and 
its securing effect. Because I would say, I think the majority of Calvinists would agree with this, that Christ, the divine value of Christ's blood is sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world. Absolutely. Yes, it's sufficient. And that's not at all what that... that uh, and I think that's a big misconception. People say, well, he only died for the elect because maybe he wasn't powerful enough to save everyone. That's not no, true He is whatsoever. unlimited in his power. Right. And we absolutely. talked a lot about that in the unconditional election. Yeah, absolutely. Portion. And so he's unlimited in his power, but limited in its application, limited in its effectiveness. Um, it's defined for his people. Right. And there's nothing, nothing wrong with believing that. It does not diminish the love of God in any way. Right. But the question is, how do we reconcile this with verses like John 3.16? And so, John 3.16, reading out of the ESV, probably the most famous verse in all of Scripture. Yep. I was an atheist, and I knew this verse. Right. Uh, yeah, everyone knows it. Absolutely. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so, <laughs> so that seems pretty general. It seems as though it's to say that Christ died for all people. And, and I would say yes to an extent, but he did not die for all people in the same way. Mm. His death, the intent of his death was to secure and purchase a people, as Revelation says, uh, to purchase a people from every tribe, language, nation, and right. tongue. It doesn't say to purchase all people. Uh, when we look at the Bible and look at those verses, that see, it, I think it's important just to mention beforehand, personally, I used to not be a, a, a proponent, a, a believer in the doctrine of limited atonement. Mm. Even when I was a Calvinist and I affirmed the doctrines of grace, this was a doctrine that I struggled with and struggled reconciling the scriptures with. Right. And I think a lot of believers still have that struggle because yeah. it is a very controversial doctrine. Yeah, this is probably the one that I am the most contra like not the most lenient on as well. I think yeah. this is, but I think it has some good stuff to say, <coughs> and I think it's biblical in its definition. Mm, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, I think this is one of the ones that a lot of people struggle with the most. Yeah. And I think it is for good reason. Too. Yeah. But I, I, I strongly do believe that there is biblical evidence yeah. for the doctrine of limited atonement. And as we said before, we do believe that God has a genuine compassion and love and desire for the salvation of the wicked, even those who are the non-elect. Right. He still loves them. They're his creation. Yeah. And made I, his image. And I think John 3 is such an interesting chapter. And I think when we read John 3... Christians jump to John 3.16 and say, boom, that's the end. <laughs> Finish reading the chapter. I was literally just about to say you know, the like, verse let's jump right down after there. that. Yeah. yeah, The next verse, uh, 17, says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So is the world every living person? Hmm. Is everyone going to be saved? Right. Uh, we have to understand that when the Scripture uses the word world, we have to define the words of Scripture based on, one, the Greek, and two, the context in which it's written. Yeah, the intended audience. Absolutely. We, right, exactly. The intended and audience. We have to look at the hermeneutical structure yeah. of what is being portrayed yeah. in that particular passage. Yeah, and a lot of times the scriptures, the apostles, when they're writing, they use the word world in a very limited sense. Right. They don't necessarily mean every individual in the world. They simply mean the world, or in the Greek, you know, the cosmos. Um, Similar to how when we say church, yeah, we're talking about the place where we gather with believers to worship God on a Sunday. Yeah. But when we say church, we're also talking about the global church. Absolutely, Everyone. yeah. Similar. Yeah, it's, it's, a very, it's a very similar parallel. Very similar, very yeah. similar parallel. I think that when it comes to un, you know, unlimited versus limited atonement, the question that we often raise, the defining question is, for whom did Christ die? And John Piper, he says it very brilliantly, I think. He said, Christ died, as John 3.16 says, in such a way that whoever would believe in him 
would have eternal life. Exactly. And I very much believe that. I hardly believe that whoever whoever believes in Jesus, whoever trusts in Him, will will have eternal life. They mm-hmm. will have a relationship with God. Their sins will be forgiven. They'll have a restored relationship with Him that progresses for all eternity. They will have life, eternal life, which Jesus defines in John 17 as knowing God and knowing right. His Son. I very much believe that. However, I do believe that the only ones who will believe are those whom God has foreknew and called and predestined mm-hmm. and justified and glorified, adopted, all of those great things. And so when it comes to the idea of limited atonement, we have to understand, again, that his death had a purpose. It had an intention, a specific purpose. And when it comes to redeeming a people onto himself, that purpose was very, it was limited in the sense of who who it was intended for. It's limited in its application. But like we said before, it's not, it's not limited in its power. Right. Not and, at all. And I think... I think the way that the five points, the, the way that the doctrines of grace are set up, to adhere to one means that you have to adhere to another. Because if you, if you, if I were to say I think limited atonement is an incorrect doctrine, I think it's not biblical. Then how can I say that unconditional election? Absolutely, is exactly. True. You, they go hand in hand. They yeah. play. They're intertwined. They play yeah. similar roles. And for me to say unconditional election isn't true mm-hmm. would to say that may, limited atonement isn't true. But I can't yeah. say that limited atonement is true and unconditional election is false. Yeah. They kind of, they're intertwined that way. And so... They're two sides of the same coin. Right. And yeah. so I think we have to look at that as well. Yeah. Because if we have ample biblical evidence to affirm unconditional election and... We should then, that evidence should also be placed in the limited atonement category for evidence for that too, because yeah. they go hand in hand. Yeah, and to say that to say that Christ's sacrifice is not activated until the recipient has faith, to say right. that our faith initiates the work of salvation, I think is to contradict election. Hands down. Yeah, to, to say that it's dependent upon us and our response is to contradict election. To, and also, in that, it would also... Whenever Christ's death is spoken of by the apostles in the scripture, they describe it as a substitutionary, all-sufficient sacrifice. It's not any of those things if it's dependent upon our response. It served a purpose, and it will serve that purpose regardless of what we do. So the question is, did Christ's death make people savable, or did it actually save them? Mm -hmm. Did it it fulfill and accomplish that which it was intended to do? Did the purpose of Christ's death, was it accomplished in Jesus and him alone, or is it dependent upon us for for it to have its way? I've once heard a preacher say, that too much of Christ's blood has been shed in vain. And I cringed at that. Mm. The idea that what Christ set out to do was not accomplished simply because people reject him? No, I don't think that that's true at all. People are inevitably going to reject him, and Jesus knew that when he went to the cross. However, he did not just buy people. He bought their very faith on the cross. He bought their faith. He purchased their repentance. Right. And just like the definition says, and I think it's very true, that when it comes to limited atonement, we have to understand that he came to secure their salvation, to secure their faith. All the benefits of salvation he provided for the elect. And so, again, the question, who did Jesus die for? I would say everyone in a sense, because he is, as First Timothy says, he is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Mm-hmm. And so the salvific benefits of his death are only intended for the elect. Right. So I would say, and some theologians would argue, that there are, there are non-salvific benefits for the non-elect, within the death of Christ. Mm-hmm. Some would say that Christ, I'm not saying this is explicitly 
in Scripture, but right. some would say that, that Christ purchased common grace mm. on the cross right. for all time. Yeah. And I think that that's very true. I think the problem, though, with rejecting unlimited, uh, rejecting limited atonement and affirming unlimited is that is two things. One, again, you are saying that Christ's death did not accomplish that which it set out to do. If Christ truly did die for all people and his death is a substitutionary sacrifice, then their sins are forgiven, including the sin of unbelief, which right. means everyone would be saved. Yeah, and it's interesting. I was actually at a Bible study just a few weeks ago, and we, we were talking about sin. We were talking about consequences of sin. It was really interesting to see where the conversation led. It actually started like cringing a little bit because there, there were people saying that, that when I sin, God's wrath is poured out in my consequence. Mm. And it just made me like... It made me like just just sit there. And granted, it was a Bible study with some younger people, so it's not like yeah. not like they were just wrong. They were just young, and so I, I just sat there and I listened to this conversation go on and go on and go on. And I just finally had to stop them and say, "Christ's wrath, if you are in Him, is not poured out on you in any way." Kind of like mm-hmm. what we were talking about in the last session, because if we had any of God's wrath, yeah. we would be condemned directly to hell. Absolutely, God's wrath on the elect was poured out on Jesus. Yes. So there's no more wrath. It's gone. We're blameless. We're righteous. We have righteousness imputed on us because of that transaction that took place. Absolutely. And I sat there and I had to explain (laughs) to them that, that our consequences of our sin aren't God like, oh, you did that sin. I have to punish you in this way. But consequences of sin happen because sin is in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the consequence of having premarital sex might not be that God's going to kill everyone in your family. That's not how that <laughs> works. But you might get someone pregnant. Absolutely. Well, that's a consequence. Yeah. And, and if you're a believer, then God will discipline you as his child. Right. And so we have to look at it not through a lens of God pouring out his wrath on us. Mm-hmm. But through the atonement, through Christ's death on the cross, that wrath has been poured out on Jesus on our behalf. Absolutely. And when we start to recognize this, I think limited atonement starts to make a little bit more sense. Yeah, because is, is his wrath done away with completely? Right, The wrath no. that he drank? Because, well, and we have to look at, like, Christ's wrath on, the, on believers is gone. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. On who? Right, on but who? there yeah. are people they are going to face judgment there are people in this world that will face judgment and that wrath is going to condemn them yeah to hell for eternity and even at the end of john 3 we read john 3 36 whoever believes in the son has eternal life whoever does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of god will remain on him Mm. so the believer has eternal life there's no wrath there yes because christ drank the cup of god's wrath exactly but those who do not believe in the Son of God, they won't see life, but they will have the wrath of God resting on them. So the wrath of God is currently on them. Right, and it will be on them for eternity. Yes. Because that's the only way that it can be poor. Because <laughs> yeah. eternal you know, separation from God is eternal yeah. wrath on the sinner. Absolutely. And so now limited atonement starts to make sense. Because if Christ died for everyone, yeah. then that wrath would be on no one. Exactly. But scripture clearly portrays the fact that wrath will remain on those who do not believe in him. Yes. Thus, all of God's wrath was poured out for the elect Mm -hmm. on the cross. Yeah. Not 
for those who don't believe in him. Yeah. That wrath is to come. And it's going to stink. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. that's going <laughs> to suck. Yeah. And they're going to see that on Judgment Day. So, Absolutely. I think that, without a shadow of a doubt, affirms, biblically, the doctrine of limited atonement. Yeah, and if we, if we don't affirm that, if we were to reject that, then we would say that hell is full of people from whom, for whom Christ died. Yeah, and then, or, or we're stepping into a realm of universalism. Absolutely. And, and both sides, either people that Christ died for living eternally in hell, which is clear heresy, mm-hmm. or universalism saying that, you know, somehow everyone's going to go to heaven, even Lucifer, mm. is also heresy. Limited atonement is the only thing that biblically makes sense yeah. and doesn't, you know, disregard any other parts of scripture. Yeah. And, and I think it's important to know that we talked about the last podcast about how unconditional election betrays the beauty of the love of God. Yeah. And this, I think uh, back when I didn't believe it, I think I didn't believe it because I didn't understand it and I could argue the Bible based on the way I read words uh-huh. uh, instead of looking into the context uh, and the way in which words were used in a very limited sense by the right. apostles and the way they wrote. But prior to that, I think well, I think now accepting living atonement, I very clearly see the love of God for his bride, the very intentional sacrifice. It was substitutionary. And I see that substitute as Jesus for his bride. Mm-hmm. He died, John 10, he died for his sheep, for his people. He laid down his life for them. Uh, and so every place where the scripture seems to say that Christ did die for the whole world, in, in essence and in, in a way, yes, in the sense that there are probably benefits of the atonement for the non-elect. Yes. However, the salvific benefits, who did Jesus die for? Whose wrath did he drink? Obviously, the scriptures say, right. hands down, that is the elect. Yeah, and we could, we could very much agree with that. Yeah. E- even non-believers. And that's the thing. Even, even people who, do not, who are not proponents of Calvinism, they would even say that they would agree with the statement that Christ's death is sufficient for all people, and that's only applied to the elect. And so we all believe in a form of limited atonement, right. because it's only going to be applied, his death right. is only going to be applied to the elect. Now, for... Uh purposes i want to read the arminian side and yes because it's the, probably the most popular right this is position. this is yeah. this is one that i general, <coughs> general atonement is probably or, or universal redemption whichever term you want to use yeah is one of the more accepted doctrines within the non-reformed christian there's community. a lot of four-point calvinist yeah yeah tons <laughs> so let's go ahead and read it it says and this is general atonement Christ's redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved, but did not actually secure the salvation of anyone. Although Christ died for all men, and for every man, only those who believe in him are saved. His death enabled God to pardon sinners on the condition that they believe, but it did not actually put away anyone's sins. Christ's redemption becomes effective only if man chooses to accept it. So it's dependent upon us. Yeah. <laughs> Which we read all throughout scripture, nothing is dependent on us. Yes. We are nothing but, our, our works are nothing but dirty rags, like yes. we talked about earlier. We just contribute our sin to our salvation. That's all we contribute. And it also places the role of God in our hands. Mm. So... And it diminishes the value of the cross. Yeah. It says that the, the cross wasn't sufficient. Hmm. The cross started the process, and we have to finish it. Hmm. And we read in what Philippians 1, I believe, talks about him who started a good work will yeah. be faithful to complete it. Yeah, Philippians 1.6, yeah. He completes it. 
Yeah, and we'll talk about that with perseverance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, in our own, you know, sinful nature, can't yeah. initiate nor complete anything. Yeah, it's only by the Spirit's gift of regeneration that we yeah. can do that. And, and I just think this definition, when heard and then applied biblically, makes no sense. Hmm. However, we can still read this, and it doesn't change the fact that if you adhere to this doctrine. That you're not saved. No, it's not the it gospel. It still applies. Yeah. Right. I mean, Christ died to save you. Mm-hmm. That's 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 the truth. Yeah. Whether whether your general atonement or uh, limited atonement, it doesn't matter. Christ died to save you. And you you know, your trust, yeah. your faith is placed in him, like we talked about last podcast. Mm-hmm. You are secured. Yeah. However, this doctrine places a lot of God's work in our hands. Yeah. And I just think that is very anti-biblical. Yeah, and I think that uh, when we when we present the gospel, at least more often than not, what I hear is that people say, "Well, Christ died for all people; He died for you." And it, it almost makes it sound like you know a very personal, emotional kind of a kind of a motivational right. kind of speech. You know, be reconciled, be reconciled to God, be saved because Christ died for you. Um, when biblically speaking, um, the Bible says that Christ died for His people. Yes, and I don't know if if you're one of his people. Right. And that's not my job to determine that. It's my right. job to be, and we'll talk about this more with evangelism toward the end of the podcast, but I think it's important that when we talk about Christ's death, we simply state it as it was a substitutionary death for his people and that he he died and he paid the penalty of sin. Mm. Whether that's your sin or my sin, he did take the penalty that we all deserve. Now the question of did he do it for us, for who it is, yeah, that's where the controversy mm-hmm. comes comes in. But the question of what did Christ do on the cross? We can all agree. He paid the penalty for sin. Uh, it was a substitutionary death for his people. And that if we would trust in him and believe on Jesus, then we could have eternal life. We could know God. Amen. Yeah, yeah. and I think, and and we hear a lot, especially within the evangelical community, people will say things like, it's like, I'm, I'm an evangelist. Like, I'm a missionary. It's my job to save people. We don't save anyone. <laughs> That's not our job, guys. No. We are solely just vessels. We're, we get the blessing of being the ambassador. We are. We go out and we we bring the message, but yeah. we do not apply that message to their life. That's the spirit's and, work. And if yeah. and if we aren't responsible to save other people's lives, then yeah. we certainly aren't responsible to save our own lives. <laughs> yeah, it's God's job. And so for us to say that it was my, I chose God yeah. and I saved my life, but it's not my job to save other lives. Yeah. How me-centric is that? Absolutely. Again, yeah. it's pointing, the arrow's being pointed back at me. Yeah. We're lifting up ourselves. We can boast in that. And we can also boast in the fact I saved that person. No, absolutely. You know, that not. that's yeah. definitely something we could boast in. We I've, could... I've saved 19 people this week. You know, that's something that you can yeah. boast in. Yet... I could have brought the message to 40 people this week, but God is the one who saved whoever he saved out of those 40. Yeah, and I think Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. He says, you know, we we do not make the plant grow. We plant seeds and we water, but that's all we can do. Right. We do not grow the plant in a person. That is the vine's job. We're simply, um, we are simply messengers. We're simply ambassadors for Christ. We receive that blessing. He is ordained who is going to be saved. But he also, he's also ordained the means by which we'll be saved, and that's the proclamation of the gospel. He chooses and delights in using his children to proclaim this great gospel to the nations, and he brings the elect to himself. But in all honesty, we, we have to realize, and we'll talk about this more 
toward the end with evangelism, but God doesn't need us. Right. You know, he doesn't need us at all. No. But we're blessed that he decides to use us. Absolutely. All right, so let's go ahead and transition to our next point. I feel like all these points are connected. It's <laughs> <That's> ironic. <laughs> yeah. Here's here's a really good one. Here's one that's one of my favorites, Irresistible Grace. Oh, yeah. And we're not going to spend too much time on Irresistible Grace <coughs> because I, would lo- I really want to move on to Perseverance of the Saints. Yeah, I do want to get to that. Uh, however, we should spend some time on it. Yeah. So here's what the definition of Irresistible Grace is. In addition to the outward general call to salvation, which is made to everyone who hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit extends to the elect a special inward call mm. that they inevita- that inevitably brings them to salvation. The external call, which is made to all without distinction, can be and often is rejected. However, the internal call, which is made only to the elect, cannot be rejected. It always results in conversion. By means of this special call, the Spirit irresistibly draws sinners to Christ. He is not limited in his work of applying salvation by man's will, nor is he dependent upon man's cooperation for success. The Spirit graciously causes the elect sinner to cooperate, to believe, to repent, to come freely and willingly to Christ. God's grace, therefore, is invincible. It never fails to result in the salvation of those whom it is extended to. Hmm. I like that. I think this is a really good definition, and this plays into unconditional election, which hmm. which we did talk about. But let's 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 just converse on this briefly. Irresistible grace. Yeah, it's an inward call from the spirit. Yes. Tell us about it. Uh, as opposed to the outward, outward call. call that you and I may bring to people, which is the proclamation of the gospel right. to the nations. <clears throat> However. As that happens, the Spirit does a special work, this inward calling by which he draws people to himself. And even in John 6, Jesus says that um, that no one can come to me. In the Greek, no one is able mm. to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's, it's a drawing. Now, that's not to say, can the Spirit be rejected? Yes, everyone rejects the Spirit in their natural state. But there is an inward calling by which the Spirit and the love of God uh, overcomes our rebellion. And he makes us alive mm. with Christ. And in making us alive, he gives us new desires. And this is, this is a major tenet of Reformed theology is that regeneration precedes faith. Because in our natural, right. in our natural depraved, den or trespasses state, we can't produce faith in ourselves. And so only an alive person can have faith. And this is the progression of events we see in John 3. You must be born again. Mm-hmm. And then after born again, he talks about believing in the Son. And so belief, faith, comes after regeneration. Right. So, and would you say that that inward call from the Spirit and regeneration go hand in hand? Yes, absolutely. I think it's all synonymous. Okay. I think that when, that when he makes you alive in Christ, you believe in him, you trust in him, he enables you and he gives you the inclination and the desire to seek God and place your faith in Jesus. Right. Um, I think it's all a simultaneous event. I think that when the scales fall off and when you can finally see, when he removes your blindness, um, when he frees you, from the power of the prince of the air, uh, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of rebellion, of disobedience, I believe that when he frees you of that, you run to him. Mm. You run to him. When, when, he, when you see the beauty of Christ, when he removes the scales from your eyes and you see Jesus in the gospel and the beauty of it for all that it is, you run to it. Mm. An analogy that I heard is really good is, um, it's like, it's like this is very disgusting, but what, what, what's a food that you hate? I hate Brussels sprouts. Okay, you hate Brussels sprouts. What's a food you love? I love pizza. Oh, me too. Me yeah. too. And I, I, I agree with you. Amen. Um, well, what if you ate Brussels sprouts all your life and that's what you were used to? But then for the first time, somebody offered you a slice of pizza. And at first you're hesitant to take it 
Um, but then somehow, you know, they persuade you to take it. You smell it. You smell that it is good. It looks good. You taste it. Would you go back to the Brussels sprouts? Absolutely not. That's <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You've tasted and seen that pizza is good. Right. And so you're not going to go back to the filth. Um, so the idea is that the spirit overcomes our rebellion. He gives us a new nature with a new desire, a new desire, and that desire finding its fulfillment in Jesus. Um, this is the picture of him drawing us to himself. Um, yes, it's true. All who seek, find. But the only ones who seek are those whom God has given them the desire to seek him. Right. Because we don't have that desire on our own. So God, through his person and through his love and his grace, he reveals himself to his elect. He, that spirit gives that inward calling by which we are drawn to Christ and we believe unto salvation because we want to. Mm-hmm. He gives us the desire. So when people say, I've decided to follow Jesus, I say, yes, amen, that's true. You did choose Christ, but you chose Christ because he first chose you right. and he drew you to himself. And so by that drawing, by that calling, um, he's brought you to himself. He's enabled you to believe. He's given you the desire for Jesus. Um, and you naturally do it. Right. You, it. It's not like he drags you into the kingdom kicking and screaming. Uh, he's changed your heart. Yeah, you absolutely. want to. He's he, As the prophets constantly predicted this event that was coming when God was going to remove their hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh, give them new hearts. They couldn't obey the law of God because the law wasn't written in their hearts. Mm. They needed new hearts. That was the, the, law, the problem was not the law, but the reason the law put them in bondage was because of their sinful hearts. Right. They need new hearts in order to love God and obey him. Yeah. And so that's the... The, the doctrine of irresistible grace, um, although it's not always, I think out of all the out of all the doctrines of grace, this one isn't explicitly stated in scripture, right. but it's definitely implied. Yeah, and I think the other points help defend th- yes. this you know point, and I think the other points are definitely defended within scripture. Yes. So I think we can we can use scripture to defend ir- irresistible grace and yes. maybe not straight on absolutely but definitely through other points that that are defended by scripture now to move on to perseverance of the saints i think we've discussed irresistible grace um you think we you think <laughs> think they understand I, I think i think this one might be one of the easier ones to grasp yeah because I, think I think the definition was really good it. yeah you know this is something that that christians have experienced that point of I'm I'm trusting God with everything mm-hmm. I have, and like we don't understand why or how. Mm-hmm. And then you know when we're baptized in the Spirit and we're regenerated, we've experienced these things. And so I I truly think that this is something that that a lot of Christians can can grasp possibly a little bit easier. Yeah. Because it's something that they've tangibly experienced yeah. in their life. And it's it's an effectual calling. It's an effectual calling, and the reason we call it irresistible is because it always results in its intended outcome, which is the salvation of the person right. that's called. Uh, regeneration, it's the Spirit's work. It's not something we produce in ourselves. Um, this is a special grace. Um, this is a note that I wrote down once. It's important to recognize that this is a special grace given only to those whom God has chosen for salvation. It's different from the common grace. It's the salvific, irresistible grace that he gives to his elect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Yeah, he's not forcing us to believe. He's not dragging us into the kingdom. He's simply showing us how beautiful he is, removing our blindness, making us alive, and making us want him. Yeah. Yeah. So that's good. Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> Perseverance of the saints. Oh, this is a, it's a big one. This definition is the shortest out of the other four. I feel like it's the most commonly the accepted point. I think this one is... Because people want to believe it. This is the one that I think scares people the most if it's not true. Yeah. 
yet it's one of the more accepted points. However, yeah. there are especially more charismatic uh, parts of Christianity that don't affirm perseverance of the saints. Yeah. And, and, and they affirm, like, you can backslide out of salvation. And so mm-hmm. we want to talk about this, bring it to light. And I do know a lot of people, you and I have, pro- I know I have, experienced, well, maybe, is it forever? Like, you know, like, is there a doubt there? I yeah. think every Christian faces that Struggles with assurance, point. yeah. So... And this is something really good for us to study. Absolutely. Persevering to the saints, here's the definition. <coughs> All who are chosen by God, redeemed by Christ, and given faith by the Spirit are eternally saved. Mm. They are kept in faith by the power of the Almighty God, and thus persevere mm. till the end. That is a very short definition. The shortest one. So we have seen the classic case of, you know, the young man going to Bible camp. Mm. youth camp you know accepting quote unquote the Lord as his savior Mm -hmm. becoming a believer you know two years later he is drinking again he's partying again and every sign of Christ in Mm. his life is gone yeah what is he a believer (laughs) and 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 it's in no point and it's no (coughs) Our job is not to judge the salvation of other people. No. We have to make that clear. No, absolutely not. However, when we see a brother or sister in sin, it is our job to gracefully and lovingly call them out. Yeah, we address it, and in love, we try to restore them. Right, and if they don't, if they continue to reject, and they yeah. continue to to despise God and mm-hmm. reject you know, what, what yeah. we're teaching them, then... You know, it's probably safe to say they were never saved to begin with. Yeah, and we regard them as an unbeliever. Biblically, that's what we right. do. Right. I mean, that's what we're taught to do. But there's and, this perte- per- perpetual rejection. Yeah, and I think, uh, I think the Book of Matthew talks a little bit about it. I think First uh, Corinthians talks a little bit about it, mm-hmm. and we see that a brother who is no longer living as Christ would, continuously mm-hmm. and not repenting, yeah, and, and willingly choosing to go against yeah, so, God's so will. Well, what's that all about? Yeah. I mean, we're we're called to treat him as yeah. an unbeliever. It's yeah. Because he is. <laughs> so how do we navigate this ground of not judging other people's salvation? Yeah. Because we're not to do that. That is God's job and God's mm-hmm. job alone. But how do we, you know, go about well, who do I need to focus more on or who do I need to pull closer to God? How do we kind of <laughs> navigate those waters? Because yeah. Because I think it's clear in Scripture that that once we're saved, God's hand will not let go of us. Yeah, John 10 says that the shepherd and the sheep, he can't take it. Right. No one can take him out of my hands. And so, to, it's clear. There yeah. is, out of all of the five points... There's probably the most biblical evidence I think, I firmly believe perseverance of the saints is the one yep. point that is strictly biblical and cannot be disproven by Scripture. Yes. Because Scripture proves it. Yes. He who began the good work will, will be to faithful to complete. Right. Yes, he's the author and the finisher of our faith. Well, yeah, finisher, perfecter. Like yeah. So and with the, that the being dwelling said, of the spirit, it's permanent. Exactly. The spirit doesn't go away. He doesn't leave you yeah. because now we look in the Old Testament. Yeah. The, the spirit the dwelling was temporary and selective. Right. But because of Christ's death on the cross, that gift has been given to us, yeah. and we've received the gift of the spirit, it's which permanent. is now eternal. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So, so with that being is, said, what's that all about with people 
how do we leaving. how do we deal with those people <laughs> um yeah. i'll say this i think um i think the biggest tragedy and this is my biggest critique of american christianity is because we present the gospel in such a way that we it's not that we it's not that we overemphasize the love of god but we definitely underemphasize all of his other attributes mm. So our presentation of the gospel, we try to make it such an attractive way that, honestly, more often than not, I see this, it becomes an emotional uh, appeal to the audience. Hey, be reconciled to God. He loved you so much. He died for you. We don't address the severity of sin. We don't address these other aspects and attributes of who God is in his character. And so because of that, we have this gospel. And it's not a call to urgency. It's not a warning. It's simply a call to love. And I think that that's the biggest tragedy. In America especially, mm. a lot of false conversions. Right. And the reason being is because we don't present the gospel and we don't present the call to follow Jesus the way that Jesus presented it. Right. When Jesus called people, he said, hey, come and die. Yeah. He said, die to yourself. He said, you cannot be my follower unless you love me. He said, you're not worthy of me yeah. unless you love me more than you love everything else. Yeah, and we see that in, in the par- He, go, Don't go bury your father. You know, yeah. he wanted, he yeah. wanted, and he didn't want to go bury his father because he loved his father. He wanted to go bury his father to get that inheritance. Yes. But we see that Christ is like, let the dead bury the dead. Yeah. You know, dr- follow me. Yeah. We, nothing is more important than yeah. following Christ. And we see that continuously throughout Jesus's life, all throughout mm-hmm. the book of Acts. Absolutely. And then continued throughout all of the epistles. Absolutely. And so for someone to say that, yeah, I'm all out for Jesus or I am, uh, or I'm sold out for Christ. Like, I think that that's, that's synonymous. Being sold out and being a Christian is the same thing. Being a living sacrifice. Dedication, a lot of times, like, I worked at a camp, and not at all judging this camp. I worked at a Word of Life camp, and I love Word of Life, love the ministry. They're doing so many great things for God, a lot of great discipleship. But we have this night every Wednesday where we call dedication night where we throw mm-hmm. our sticks in the fire and we say, okay, God, all I am, all I have been, I give to you, which is a good commitment. Yeah, but it's not something we do one time in our lives. It's a daily decision. You know, mm-hmm. it's a de- dedication yeah. is a daily decision that we make yeah. by which we devote ourselves to God. Um, so being sold out for Christ, there, there's no such thing, I believe, as a complacent believer. Now, now believers do maybe go through seasons where they're apathetic. Exactly. And I do think that's very possible for a child of God. I've do I've gone through those seasons. Yeah. We've all gone I through those seasons. I feel like everyone has. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. It's in, and it's in those desert seasons that Christ woos his bride and brings them back to himself. Absolutely. And so I very much believe if you're trapped in a season and a cycle of sin as a believer in Christ, I'm not saying that doesn't mean you're not saved. It does mean though that if you truly are saved, you will be convicted. You yeah. will repent. Yeah. True children always come back to their father. Either that or he brings them back one way or yeah. another. Um, and we see that in, in James 2, I think, or James 1. And it just talks about, like, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Yes. You know, yeah, and James so 1, 5, yeah. during, during those, you know, se- those desert seasons, when, yeah. when we are apathetic or we are, you know, yeah. turning from Christ, that testing of our faith yeah. will produce in us steadfastness. Yeah. If we're in Christ. Yeah. And if they come back, you know that they're genuine. And if they do come back, they're stronger than ever. Yeah. Because the one who is forgiven much loves much. Um, And so I believe God allows believers, his children, to go through those seasons and he disciplines them, he convicts them, and he draws them back to himself. Um, So I do think it's very possible. However, I will say this. John Piper said himself, I very much believe that it's impossible to know Jesus, to trust in him and not love him with everything you have. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. Uh, You cannot, like... 
like one of my great theologian friends, he said that God's grace is like a rhino. Like when it hits you, you know it. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's impossible to not have experienced the love of Jesus and truly have been changed by that. Yeah. And I think the reason... And that goes back to irresistible grace too. Exactly, I mean, exactly. And that's why we have so many false conversions because our presentation of the gospel is not the gospel. A lot of times it's emotionalism. It's people getting emotional and then they believe in Jesus, yeah, with their head. But it's just intellectual faith. Right. And that faith doesn't save you. Right. If the Bible calls us to believe with our hearts, and if you believe something with your heart, then you're saved. If you believe it with your heart, it'll change the way you live your life. Right. You can believe something in your head and it doesn't do anything for you. But if you believe it with your heart, it changes how you live your life. Right. Um, so I very much believe, you know, David Platt wrote, wrote a book called Radical. Such um, a good book. It's literally, if you're listening, read it. One of the best books. It'll be in the show notes. Yeah. Greatest critique on the American church I've ever read. It's like an epistle bashing the American church. Yeah. And I think it's it's beautifully written. But the biggest point that he makes that I think is important to note is that is that what the world calls radical, the Bible calls reasonable. Right. You know, what what, what we see as radical in the scripture is biblical. Uh, that's it's intended to be that. To be all for Jesus is to be for Jesus. We're either for him completely or we're against him. Right. There's no in between. Um, even in Laodicea, the lukewarm church in Revelation three, he says, I'll spit you out, you know? And I don't think that's a very kind term for believers because right. I don't think he's talking believers. Right. I think he's saying, you've proven by your lukewarmness that you're not for me. And so for that reason, I will spit you out. And so I hold the conviction um, that if a, if a believer or a said believer leaves the faith, because the Bible does talk about apostasy, but it says in 1 John 2, it talks about um, those who leave the faith. And it says that those who leave us were never a part of us. Mm-hmm. They were never truly one of us. Right. Maybe they were partaking in the community of believers. Maybe they were uh, being involved. Maybe they did show some form of godliness. But just like First Timothy says, that godliness lacked power in that it wasn't genuine. There is a faith that cannot save us, and that's merely intellectual faith. Mm-hmm. If it's genuine faith, James 2, just like we're talking about James, James 2 says it will produce works. Right. We don't work from our salvation. We don't work for our salvation, but we do work from it. Um, and that is a natural and progressive uh, result of God's saving work on our lives. And so when I see believers, um, when I see believers go through seasons of sin, I don't jump the gun and say that they're not believers because I do think, especially younger believers, they go through that season where Satan is attacking them, trying so hard to destroy the good work that God has put in them. Right. And so when that happens, uh, I'm, I'm, I don't immediately jump the gun and say that they're not saved, that their salvation wasn't genuine. I seek to restore them and and uh, right. see if they come back. But And there are those seasons. True children of God will always come back. And if they don't, then I would say it's it's okay, judging by their fruit, to make the assumption that they might not be saved. Right. And that doesn't mean that you value them any less or love them any less. Right. In fact, I would say it means love that you, you love them even harder yeah. and you love them toward Christ. And so your question, how do we deal with things like that? You know, Matthew 18, perfect way, yes. perfect process of church discipline. You confront them alone. And if they repent, praise the Lord, you won your brother over. If they don't, then bring other people. Bring them before the church if it gets to that point. And if not, if if they still continually live in rebellion, yeah. then you treat them as an unbeliever. Yeah. Um, and that, and that But you still love them. You love them toward Christ. Yeah. You and love them toward and Christ. And I think that... that it definitely it'll be a wake up call for sure for for that person too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as we're wrapping up and just talking about like salvation and things, um, there's one story I'd like to share, and it I go to this charismatic church 
every once in a while. I don't go faithfully. I'm not a member there. Uh-huh. Um, Charismatics are generally Arminian, correct? Generally, yeah. And I would say that this church yeah. is Arminian. It's, it's a church. It's about an hour away from where I live. Yeah. And every week or every service at the end, and I really do enjoy the service, and I enjoy the preaching, uh-huh. and I enjoy the style, and it has a lot of good things to offer. That's why I go. Mm-hmm. However, at the end of the service, they have everyone reach... They do their altar call. They'll do, uh, and they'll do, if, if anyone here wants to accept Jesus, raise your hand. And they'll raise their hands, and they'll be like, all right, repeat this prayer after me. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, after that's all done, they'll have everyone lock hands across the aisles. And they'll say, repeat this prayer after me. And they will walk you through a prayer of acceptance of Jesus. So every, Jesus. everyone says it? Yes. Everyone, okay. in, everyone in the congregation says it. Dear Jesus, come into my heart. Mm-hmm. Forgive me of my sins. And it's that, you know, it's that accepting Jesus, which again, mm-hmm. we don't, accepting Jesus is a very Arminian thing. We believe that we <laughs> receive Jesus. Yeah. Um, and, and they do that every week. And it's not a, it's not something to stir our faith. It's something because they genuinely believe that there's a possibility that people in that congregation could have backslid that week mm. and that they need that to they lost their salvation and that they need to get their salvation back. Yeah. And that's why they do it. And that is so anti-biblical yeah. of what scripture talks about. If God is all powerful and he promises in scripture not to let you go out of his hand, mm. then we have to, we have to place our faith in that. You know, yeah. he is the rock. He is our salvation. He is uh, he is all powerful. Mm. And so there's no reason why we can't, you know, place our trust in that. And so I do want to encourage brothers, sisters out there who are listening, struggling with doubts in their salvation or struggling mm-hmm. in that area. Seek scripture. Absolutely. Uh, rest in the yeah. fact that Jesus intimately loves you on yes. the deepest level Absolutely. of your person. Mm. No one ever in your life will love you the same way that Jesus loves you. Mm rest in that yeah and through that through resting in the spirit through sitting in jesus and just through pursuing him you will start to see your life be transformed by the power of christ and it will become so evident that you have a spirit dwelling within you and there's such a peace when it's all about him and his power right and it's humbling too yeah um but yeah so i just want to leave you you know the the listeners with that again there will be resources in the show notes and other things for you guys to to utilize for your own edification things that we weren't able to, to yeah. discuss because there's so much more that goes into <laughs> reformed theology yeah that we weren't even able yeah. to touch on oh can i say one more thing real yeah quick? go ahead just really quickly um i just want to say to the listener um again i'm super humbled and blessed to be here and talk to victor um Please subscribe to his podcast. He is an awesome guy, (laughs) loves the Lord, and he is doing a work uh, for the sake of the advancement of the gospel, which is the most important thing. I do want to say that if you are going through this tedious search of Reformed theology, and if you are fascinated by the scriptures and theology, um, I think that's awesome, and continue doing it. I will say, though, um, allow theology to humble you. If I've never met in my life a prideful Calvinist who really believes it, there's a difference, again, between believing something in your head and believing with your heart. And I very much believe if you believe the doctrines of grace in your heart, it will humble you. If you really believe that you're that evil, 
that God had to initiate the response in you and that you had nothing to contribute to your own salvation. That you're, even the faith to believe in him is a God-given gift that it will humble you. And so that should be the purpose of, of not just Calvinism, but theology in general, is to humble you, to give you a greater adoration for who God is and what he's done, and embolden your evangelism. Because I very much believe that Calvinism, there's a temptation to believe that the Calvinists aren't evangelistic simply because they were like, oh, well, God's already going to draw right. them to himself. He's He knows who's going to be saved. He'll do the work, so we don't have to do anything. And I think that's a direct a direct act of disobedience against God, and we're forfeiting the blessing of being his ambassador and taking part in the Great Commission. The only reason that we're still here is for the sake of the Great Commission. Absolutely. That's why we're here. And so regardless of what you believe about Regardless of what you believe about Reformed theology, Charles Spurgeon was a five-point Calvinist, and he said, whether you affirm these doctrines or not, it doesn't matter. The Great Commission is still the most important thing. The advancement, the proclamation and advancement of the gospel is the most important thing. And we, it does not, for me at least, it doesn't hinder my evangelism, it emboldens it. Mm. Because I know that out there is Christ's bride. His people are out there, and I don't know who they are. But that frees me to go and preach the gospel to all people, and God will do the saving. I just get to be the messenger. And as God brings people to himself, more glory to his name. Amen. It's not about me. It's all about him. And because we don't know who the elect are, but we do know that they're out there, we can simply just keep preaching right. until the whole world hears and b until Jesus returns. And we know that he will not return until the whole world has been reached with the gospel. Right. And so I hope that, that that hope should be our motivation. Yeah. Who have all Absolutely. things. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. Thank uh, you so making much. Making the Richard. drive and coming out and... Uh, <laughs> It's been a huge blessing for me and the podcast and hopefully the listeners yeah. and how God is going to use uh, these two sessions that we had together to edify uh, those who listen and uh, sanctify long-term you and me and everyone who's listening. So Absolutely. Thank you so much, guys. Again, uh, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes again. Uh, that would be a huge help. Give us a rating. Also, if you guys are considering financially supporting the ministry or the podcast, please let me know. Uh, God has blessed us, and we know that he will be faithful to carry us through mm. the point in which he is most glorified. And so we hope and pray mm. that he will utilize those who are listening to continue the ministry and, and just that we can create a support. Um, you guys can support us as we uh, hopefully... Uh, by the Spirit are able to edify you by pointing you directly back into Scripture. So with that, again, thank you. Uh, such a blessing, guys. We love you, and uh, we cannot wait to see you guys next week. Until then, take care, and God bless. And that's the show. Thanks for listening. The BGN Podcast comes out every week. Questions? Email us at gracenationministries at yahoo.com or tweet us at gracenationmin. Until next time, take care and God bless.